Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I'm the host of the podcast Revolution Z. Revolution Z has a number of focuses, primarily vision and strategy, uh, but sometimes also elections, uh, sometimes activism, and so on. This episode, episode number 26, is uh, the seventh in the strategy series, and it's titled Conspiracy Theory or Not. You can access Revolution Z in many ways, each of which is described at Znet's Revolution Z page, which is at zcom.org slash Revolution Z. You can help Revolution Z, and we really do need your support, at the Patreon page of the podcast. That's at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Revolution Z. And now for episode 26. Nowadays, wherever we go, leftists encounter many questions from newly political or not yet political folks about this or that political event, often with an emphasis on who did what, when, and with what knowledge and intent. We feel fewer questions, however, about the systemic causes of trends and events. People often worry about the membership of some rogue group. People often ignore the structure of government and corporations. People endlessly monitor the words and even the looks and mannerisms of political candidates and the specifics of this or that media moment they may have. Their tone, their appearance gets attention. Their policies, much less their history, not so much. We consider much less attentively candidates' history of connections and commitments and even their actual proposals. We overwhelmingly ignore the structure of their campaigns, the nature of the media filtering what we see of them, and the centers of power and influence bending their wills. How did these non-institutional priorities come to dominate discussion, and, it seems, even thought, and where are they taking us? One big part of the answer is, of course, mainstream media's obsession with form and appearance over institutional substance. Form and appearance sells. It doesn't upset, and it can easily be massaged to benefit owners and investors. Another factor is social media's obsession with brevity and friendliness. That, too, sells. It doesn't upset, and it can easily be managed to benefit owners and investors. But as important as those two factors are, in this episode of Revolution Z, I would like to suggest and give some attention to still another factor. I would like to focus on the prevalence of what is called conspiracy theory over the past few decades and the habits that conspiracy theorizing, or celebrating, fosters. A conspiracy theory is a hypothesis that some events were caused by the secret machinations of undemocratic individuals operating outside and contrary to the influence of normal social relations. A prime historic example was to explain Iran-Contra as the secret rogue actions of Oliver North and his co-conspirators, and not as a natural outgrowth of political and social institutions and their logic. Another conspiracy theory explained the hostage-holding during Carter's last presidential year as the machinations of a secret team helping Reagan to win the presidency. Decades back, a conspiracy theory of Karen Silkwood's murder would have uncovered the names of people who secretly planned and carried out the murder with no attention to nuclear industry agendas. Or there have, of course, been endless ruminations about the murders of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., or even about the moon landing. More recently, we have 9-11 as government policy, AIDS as intentional murder, staged school shootings to undermine the gun industry, 
global warming to undercut big oil, genocidal fluoridation and vaccinations for I don't know what all reason, all considered conspiratorial creations. And I guess there is our flat earth too, conspiratorially denied, and really countless others. Bending usage, I suppose we could even imagine a conspiracy theory of patriarchy, as some cobble of men uniting to secretly and against the otherwise gender-neutral dictates of society, conspiring to deny women's status. Or a conspiracy theory of the U.S. government, as some competing secret group seeking power for their own ends against the otherwise inclusive democratic nature of our polity. But even as I dismiss the above, I also have to admit that conspiracies certainly do exist. Groups do do things without issuing press releases, and this becomes a conspiracy whenever their actions transcend normal behavior. We don't talk of a conspiracy to win an election if the suspect activity includes only candidates and their handlers working privately to develop effective strategy. We do talk about an election conspiracy if the candidate's actions involve stealing the other team's plans, spiking their whiskey sours, or other illegal activity. A key point to notice is that when a conspiracy causes some outcome, the outcome would not have happened, or at least would have been quite unlikely to have happened, had not that particular people with their particular inclinations come together and surreptitiously sought it. So conspiracy theories may or may not identify real coteries with real influence. Conspiracy theories claim that a particular group acted outside usual norms in a rogue and generally secretive fashion. Personalities, personal timetables, secret meetings, and conspirators' joint actions claim priority attention. Institutional relations typically drop from view. We ask, did North meet with Bush before or after a meeting between McFarlane and Mr. X? Do we have a document that reveals the plan in advance? Do phone conversations implicate so-and-so? How credible is that witness? Is that picture of men on the moon actually, in fact, a picture of men from a gymnasium photo shoot? Did a plane crash or did a basement bomb knock down that building? In an institutional theory, in stark contrast, personalities and personal motivations enter the discussion only as results of more basic factors. The personal actions culminating in some event, of course, exist. By definition, they exist, but they do not serve as explanation. An institutional theory explains actions via roles, incentives, and dynamics of underlying institutions that call forth the behaviors. An institutional theory doesn't ignore human actions, therefore, but the point of an institutional explanation is to move from personal factors to structural factors. If the particular people hadn't been there to do it, most likely someone else would have. To eliminate the type of outcome we're talking about, replace the institutions, not the proximate culprits. An institutional theory of Iran-Contra and the October Surprise would explain how and why these activities arose in a society with our political, social, and economic forms. An institutional theory of Karen Silkwood's murder would reveal nuclear industry and larger societal pressures that provoked her murder. An institutional theory of school shootings looks at the pressures producing gun culture and childhood alienation. An institutional theory of patriarchy explains gender relations in terms of marriage, the nuclear family, forms of parenting, schooling, the church, the market, socialization. 
An institutional theory of government emphasizes the means of control and and dissemination of information, the dynamics of bureaucracy, the flaws of representation, and the role of subservience to class, race, and gender interests. Institutions exist, just as private actors and their actions exist. Whenever institutions have sufficient impact on events, developing an institutional theory makes sense. However, when an event arises from a unique conjuncture of particular people and opportunities, while institutions likely also play a role, it may not be generalized and an institutional theory may be out of place or even impossible to construct. So institutional theories may or may not identify real relationships with real influences on the events they explain. Institutional theories claim that the normal operations of some institutions generate the behaviors and motivations leading to the events in question. They address personalities, personal interests, personal timetables, and meetings only as facts about the events, perhaps needing explanation, but not as explanations themselves. Organizational, motivational, and behavioral implications of institutions win most attention. Particular people while not becoming mere ciphers, are not highlighted. To see the operational difference between conspiracy theory and institutional theory, we might usefully compare a smattering of the views of two popular critics of U.S. foreign policy, Noam Chomsky and Craig Hewlett. Here is an indicative passage from each, going back to the period of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. First, Hewlett says, quote, This isn't about Iraq. This isn't about oil. It has nothing to do with those things, and it certainly doesn't have anything to do with reinstalling a legitimate government when for the first time we're trying to install a legitimate government which is a non-military despotism listed by Amnesty International as committing the same heinous crimes against his people as Hussein. What I am suggesting, Hewlett continues, is that for the first time we're going to expend American lives to put a tyrant of only a smaller stature because of the size of his country. There is a foreign policy that is being orchestrated in violation of U.S. law, international law, and the U.S. Constitution. Should that surprise anyone after Watergate, the Kennedy assassination? And he continues on. By way of contrast, we have Chomsky saying, If we hope to understand anything about the foreign policy of any state, it is a good idea to begin by investigating the domestic social structure. Who sets foreign policy? What interests do these people represent? What is the domestic source of their power? It is a reasonable surmise that the policy that evolves will reflect the special interests of those who design it. An honest study of history will reveal that this natural expectation is quite generally fulfilled. The evidence is overwhelming, in my opinion, that the United States is no exception to the general rule. He goes on, some attention to the historical record, as well as common sense, leads to a second reasonable expectation. In every society there will emerge a caste of propagandists who labor to disguise the obvious, to conceal the actual workings of power, and to spin a web of mythical goals and purposes utterly benign that allegedly guide national policy. Any horror, any atrocity will be explained away as an unfortunate or sometimes tragic deviation from the national purpose. And Chomsky continues, Since World War II, there has been a continuing process of centralization of decision-making in the state executive, certainly with regard to foreign policy. Secondly, there has been a tendency through much of this period toward domestic economic concentration. 
Furthermore, these two processes are closely related because of the enormous corporate influence over the state executive. And he continues on. The commonality often evidenced in these two thinkers is distaste for U.S. foreign policy. The difference is that Hewlett generally understands policy as the preferences of particular groups of people. In this case, he went on to discuss a junta and the al-Sabah family of Saudi Arabia, barely referring to institutions at all. By contrast, Chomsky always understands policies as arising from particular institutions, for example, the state executive and corporations. For Hewlett, the task is to punish or impeach the immediate culprits, a general point applicable to all conspiracy theory. The modus operandi of the conspiracy theorist makes good sense whenever the aim is to attribute proximate personal blame for some occurrence. That is, for example, if we want to prosecute someone for a political assassination, to extract retribution, or to set a precedent that makes it harder to carry out such actions, the approach of the conspiracy theorist fits. But the conspiracy approach does not fit for understanding and addressing the underlying causes of political assassinations. Conspiracy theorizing mimics the personality, dates, times approach to history. It provides a sports fan's or voyeur's or prosecutor's view of complex circumstances. It can manipulate facts, or better, it can present them accurately. When it's done honestly, it has its place for finding immediate culprits. But a nasty side effect is biasing people's attention toward proximate details and appearance. Conspiracy theorizing highlights trees, not the forest. For Chomsky, the problem is to discern underlying institutional causes. The modus operandi of the institutional theorists would not make much sense for discovering which individuals conceived and argued for a policy, or who in particular decided to bomb a, a civilian shelter. To understand why these happen, and especially under what conditions they will or will not continue to happen, institutional theory that uncovers the motives institutions impose are indispensable. In contrast, personal motives, methods, and timetables of the actual perpetrators are beside the point. Take the media. A conspiracy approach will highlight the actions of some coterie of editors, writers, newscasters, particular owners, or even a lobby. The spotlight will shine brightly on individuals. An institutional approach will mention the actions of those actors as evidence, but will highlight the corporate and ideological pressures giving rise to their behaviors. The spotlight will shine brightly on the internal structure and on the external connections and pressures on media institutions. A person inclined toward finding conspiracies will see evidence of media subservience to power and look for a cabal of bad guys, perhaps corporate, perhaps religious, perhaps federal, personally preventing the media from doing its proper job. The conspiracist will want to know about that cabal and why people join. A person inclined toward institutional analysis will see evidence of media subservience to power and examine the media's internal bureaucracy and employee socialization processes. She will research the interests of its owners and the pressures from without that together engender a subservience as part of the media succeeding at its job. The institutionalist will want to know about the media's structural features and how they work and about the guiding interests and what they imply. 
The conspiracy approach will lead people to believe that either A, they should educate the malefactors to change their motives, or B, they should get rid of the malefactors and back new editors, writers, newscasters, or owners. The institutional approach will note the possible gains from changes of personnel, but will explain how limited these changes will be. It will incline people, A, toward a campaign of constant pressure to offset the constant institutional pressures for media obfuscation, or B, toward the creation of new media free from the institutional pressures of corporate structure or the external mainstream. So what is the appeal of conspiracy theory? Naturally, conspiracy theory and its person-prioritizing methodology appeals to prosecutors and lawyers who must identify proximate causes and human actors. But why does it appeal to people concerned to change society? There are many possible answers that probably all operate to varying degrees on people who favor creating, celebrating, or even just passively attending to conspiracy theory. First, conspiracy theory is often emotively compelling, and the evidence conspiracy theories reveal is sometimes useful. More, description of detailed personal entwinements can become addictive. One puzzle, and then another and another, needs analysis. The approach provides plenty of grist for the eager writer or reader. Conspiracy theory has the appeal of a mystery. It is dramatic, vivid, and human. Finally, the desire for retribution helps fuel continuing forays into personal details, to get, or worse, to frame proximate culprits. Second, conspiracy theories have manageable implications. They imply that all was well once, and that it can be okay again, if only the conspirators can be removed. Conspiracy theories explain ills we can't miss seeing in a way that doesn't force us to disavow society's underlying institutions. They therefore allow us to admit horrors and to express our indignation and anger, all without having to reject the basic norms of society. The war we are perpetrating with horrific human suffering was a mistake. Global warming is a lie. The scientists are misleading us. I love the system. I hate those misusing it. With conspiracy theory, we can confine our anger to the most blatant perpetrators, real or manufactured. That government official or that corporate lawyer is bad, but many others are good, and the government and law per se are fine. We just need to get rid of bad apples. Conspiracy theory is convenient and seductive. We can reject specific candidates, but not government, specific CEOs, but not capitalism, specific writers, editors, and even owners of periodicals, but not all mainstream media. We reject some vile manipulators, but not the society's basic institutions. Incidentally, we can therefore continue to appeal to those institutions for recognition, for status, or for payment. Third, conspiracy theory provides an easy and quick outlet for pent-up passion that we withhold from targets that seem unassailable or that might strike back. This is conspiracy theory turned into scapegoat theory. Typically, blame the victim. Where do conspiracy theories take us? It would be bad enough if endless personalistic attention to narrow culprit-hunting details of real or imagined events were just attuning people to search after coteries while ignoring institutions. This was the effect, for example, of the many Kennedy assassination theories of past decades. 
At least the values at play could be progressive, and we could hope that people would soon gravitate toward explanations of more structural phenomena. But the fact is, the values inspiring conspiratorial ways of trying to explain events often drastically deserve from progressive values. Thus, the field of conspiracy theorizing is not only attractive, but new entrants are no longer often progressive, and instead often tilt toward reaction or downright fascism. At the same time, and more ominously, the presentation of conspiracy theories has moved from little newsletters and journals to large audience radio talk shows, and to magazines and White House tweets, and from identifying secret teams of CIA operatives as if they are rogue and not outgrowths of national policy, to imagining all-powerful networks of Arab financiers and worldwide Jewish bankers' fraternities. There is an ironic, if subtle, analogy to some analyses of National Republican Party politics. In that arena, many journalists started claiming, years back, that the Republican Party's manipulations of race in prior years paved the way for David Duke, and nowadays they add Donald Trump, by reacclimating the public to racial stereotyping and increasing its appetite for more. In somewhat the same way, isn't it plausible that the substantial resources thrown into progressive conspiracy writing, organizing, and proselytizing over the past few decades is now coming home to roost? Of course, the changing times are partly responsible for growing public interest in conspiracies, and not even in conspiracies per se, but in Trump's every idiotic attention-diverting utterance, and in his mental stability— or his mental instability, and the personalities and gestures of all sorts of actors in anything but underlying institutions, but are left communications also somewhat at fault. Less obviously, what about how we leftists talk about what we want in place of sexism, racism, capitalism? Don't we tend to highlight values and personal choices, but not structures? Don't we often suggest people should be different, but not describe different institutions? Certainly media reporting priorities have seriously bent our inclinations. The mainstream news and TV entertainment more broadly endlessly emphasize personalities, personal choices, and personal pathos, but rarely institutions. Bad guys, not bad structures. And the personalistic pressures and addictions of social media just augment the trends. But doesn't past behavior by progressives bear at least a modest share of responsibility as well? So what might we do about it? Left institutionalist theories generally ignore conspiracy theories as irrelevant. To confront their arguments, we think, and not without cause, is to enter a miasma of often fabricated details from which there is no escape. Nothing constructive emerges, so we ignore them, but perhaps this view needs some rethinking. When left analysts talk about events, we pay attention to proximate facts, but also to the institutional context. That's as it should be. But maybe it's no longer good enough. Now, we who have an institutional critique may have two additional responsibilities. First, perhaps we should point out the inadequacy of left conspiracy theory, showing that even at its best, it does not go far enough to be useful for organizers. Second, perhaps we should debunk rightist conspiracy theory, removing its aura of opposition and revealing its underlying racist and elitist allegiances. I don't think these suggestions are controversial, and many already abide them. Additionally, when progressive radio talk shows and left journals and magazines invite people to communicate with their public about world and national events, it is good to be sure the guest is coherent, 
It is good to be sure the guest has effective speaking or writing style. It is good to be sure talks about the issues, identify actors accurately, and know about the relevant history. Again, that's not controversial, and is largely already abided. But perhaps that much, often already done, isn't enough. Fascists can fulfill these standards and still spout made-up statistics as if they were facts, disgusting allegations about social groups as if they were objective commentary, and most importantly, nothing at all about real institutional relations, passing this whole mess off as a useful way to look at the world to understand and affect social events. We know that. But less obviously, well-meaning left critics of social life can brilliantly research individual events and their casts of actors, or emotively call for wonderful future outcomes and behaviors, but in each case say little or even nothing about underlying institutional relations, now or especially about new institutions for the future. While not literally conspiracist, such progressive contributions too often repeat the same well-known content over and over. We wail about Trump's say. We bemoan the pains of poverty, racism, or sexism. We decry the personal behaviors that abet each. We extol the virtues of freedom, solidarity, peace, and justice, and the empathetic personal behaviors that foreshadow each. But too often we fail to highlight underlying institutional causes of ills, or even more, we fail to highlight or even mention better institutions we should seek to have a better society. Left media, even strapped as it typically is, should take responsibility for its offerings. People expect that if commentators appear on our shows and in our publications, they have a degree of integrity, honesty, and sensitivity. We should not lend credence to right-wing garbage, whether it is blatant or so well-concealed as to be civil but malicious. We are already pretty good at all that. But even regarding progressive and left conspiracy theory, while it often uncovers important evidence, left activists ought to indicate its limits and augment it with institutional and contextual analysis. We're pretty good at that, too. And the same goes for left discussions of social ills and aims. Left media and writers shouldn't settle for telling audiences what they already know, what they have repeatedly heard. Beyond naming names and detailing details, our communication should uncover causes, and more, we should indicate paths to address the causes, and then, also, not just positive values we can aspire to for a better future, but positive institutions we can create and win for a better future. We are not always so good at that. From the perspective of Revolution Z, perhaps most of all, people on the left who want to create a better world ought to be very demanding of one another to not just repeat that this or that character is horrible over and over, as we all do too often with Trump, and to not just say that this or that injustice is horrible over and over, as we too often do regarding poverty and racist repression, and to not just say we want people to be good, to act well, and do positive things, but, in all these cases, on both sides of the coin, regarding both the present and the future, to address institutions. Regarding the ills of society, immigration policies, tax choices, Trump's pronouncements, or existing conditions of housing, or pollution, or warfare, we should always get behind the phenomena to institutional causes. I doubt anyone on the left disagrees, though we don't always succeed. But even more so, Regarding what we want, we should not settle for calling for short-run gains as important as they are, and we should not settle for asserting and clarifying positive values for the longer term, as important as they are. 
We should also offer institutional proposals for the longer term, as difficult as that may seem. Here I'm afraid many do disagree, but I would suggest that if we don't address future institutions by the absence of doing so, we are abetting the mainstream media, social media, and conspiracy-induced habits of leaving out what ultimately matters most, clarity about underlying causes of ills now and about a better world's core institutional attributes later. And so, trying to live up to this advisory, this is Michael Albert signing off for now for Revolution Z.